First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of two chapbooks, the novel Binary Star, and an essay collection, Sunshine State. She writes a monthly column for Hazlitt and teaches writing in New York City. The essays in Sunshine State explore her experiences growing up in Florida and touch on issues of intimacy, domestic violence, religion, fraud, family, and nature. Our interview was recorded on Skype. We began our discussion talking about why Florida is so interesting. For one, it like it looks like a place of leisure in all of the tourism ads. So maybe there's some kind of element of longing for a simpler life in in that interest. Um, but also, it's a it, it's a weird place. There's a lot of different stuff about it. You know, it's like this crazy mishmash of Caribbean culture and southern, you know, and the southern U.S. and you know, northern or like northeastern expats, kind of all smashed together into into this. Um, economically extremely diverse place you know there's like a lot of poverty here and a lot of extreme wealth and it's it also just feels wild you know it feels like the natural world is creeping in from all sides you know like you find dried up lizards you know underfoot kind of everywhere you look in your house I mean I don't know it's it's just it, it seems like it could disappear at any moment in Sunshine State you have a lot of stories some of them are nested within bigger essays about your childhood, different aspects of it. Talk a little bit about your upbringing and, and your parents who who figure pretty largely in this book. Yeah, I wanted to um, pick apart the stranger aspects of my my childhood as I remembered them. Um, kind of with, you know, I, I had this blind faith that it would lead me back to Florida um, simply by the fact of, it, of, the, of these things having happened here. Uh, one of the things that I wrote about was my parents' involvement in this marginal religious movement called New Thought, and the denomination that they practiced was called Unity. Um, and it's like it's it's a marriage of uh, Christian Science with some Eastern religions. There's this um, meditative um, aspect to it, and actually, it, it also took a lot of its um, philosophies from like early studies in mesmerism, um, like hypnosis. We, we left the church when I was 12. And even before that, I had, I had stopped going regularly. My parents never forced me to go to church, but I held on to some of the kind of core tenets of the religion. And one of them is that affirming something will, uh, will make it uh, manifest in, in the material world. And like denying something can actually make, they're called errors in the religion, but like sin or like unhappiness or sickness um, or like even poverty if you just deny it, um, that you can make it disappear from your life. Um, and the, the, the idea is that the material world is actually an illusion, whereas the spiritual world is the only real truth. And that we all can do what Jesus did, that, that Jesus is a historical figure, but his, like, his Christ essence is actually something that we all share with him. So if we can harness the power of the mind's potential, then we can actually do what Jesus did. And in this religion, what they believe is that he escaped death. He actually kind of uh, meditated or affirmed or, you know, his, his way out of, um, physical death and he became the body of light. So we're all kind of half God, half, half human, you know, so like (laughs) to hear myself explain this, it sounds a little unusual. So it, you know, as an, as an adult and even like 18 years or so, 19 years after 
leaving the religion, I was still really interested in how this could shape my way of thinking today. And, you know, I, I compared it against my, my ex-husband. We were still married at the time, but he grew up Catholic. So, you know, he has very different ideas about positivity and negativity and also like the holiness of Jesus Christ, you know, and, and our ability to shape our future. So that was, was one thing I explored in this book. Well, one of the things that I found interesting, you just said it this way, and you also wrote it in the book, and, and you mentioned that your parents always gave you agency, like you were an independent person from a very young age to make your own decisions. But I noticed in this essay and in, in a few others, you said, you know, we left the church or we were looking at new houses or we had made it in the world. Usually kids say they for their parents, but you Mm -hmm. sort of, even at 12 years old, when you weren't actually the one making money or you weren't actually the one making the decisions, I think it's an interesting concept, how you look at your family as a unit. And have you ever noticed that where other people say they about their parents and, and growing up, whereas you're like a we as if you're part of the actual decision making? Yeah, I haven't. I, you know, it's funny that you because I've I've noticed this. I've noticed myself doing this, but I haven't really picked apart why yet. So I'm just gonna kind of off the cuff speculate about why I did that. I never felt like a child in my in my house. I mean, unless I wanted to. Sometimes a child wants to feel like a child. It feels safer to be a child. But um, but yeah, I was always kind of I was always free to make my own make my own decisions. Um, I think my parents probably um, allowed me or wanted me to feel like I had some part in our decision not to go to church anymore. I think some of it also is because, and this is not to say that the situation with the church made me feel like a victim, but when you, even grammatically as a writer, kind of position yourself that way, I think the story becomes less interesting. You know, I think it's less interesting to be a victim or, you know, to, to be the person in a story that doesn't have power. I'm the protagonist in this essay, so I'm the, I should be the one, you know, making choices that affect the story, um, even if that only happens linguistically. <laughs> You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star and the essay collection Sunshine State. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you talk about the Amway years? My dad was working in, in advertising. He still is working in advertising. He left and returned, but he owned his own agency at the time, which he was actually running out of the guest bedroom of our house. And he specializes in, in automotive advertising. So he was working with this dealership. And apparently one of the managers at the car dealership was selling Amway. And Amway is very um, pushy about their distributors selling the company to other people. So you know, to your, what becomes what's known as your downline. Um, and to sell it to people, it's called, you know, they're prospecting people. So one of the managers at the, this car dealership prospected my dad and my dad, um, really relied on this person for, you know, a lot, a lot of his income. And we were pretty middle-class at the time, but you know, we were, uh, he's starting a new business, you know, he really needs, um, he needs to keep it going. If he had lost this person's business, it could have sunk the whole business. So, yeah, so he like, he was open-minded my, and my dad's pretty open-minded anyway. And so he got involved and, um, it was really bizarre. It was like my, it was like, uh, it was like a lens had been dropped over my life. Like <laughs> suddenly all of these things appeared in my house. Um, and, and we were, you know, we were getting to know people who were also in the business and they're all of these people's children became my friends. And 
I would, you know, they would babysit me after school and we would go to these functions together in Miami and it became like a second family, you know, it was like our family had grown by about 30 people, um, who, you know, they remained our family for like four years until finally my parents left, um, because they weren't making any money because it's extremely difficult to make money, uh, through, through Amway, like unless you're already on the top. So we would like participate in these dream building activities, one of which was touring these mansions near our house and then like returning home and like developing the pictures and, you know, kind of talking about the types of houses we wanted to live in and what kind of cars we wanted and what kind of boats we wanted with the idea that because we wanted to be rich and were working to be rich, that we would inevitably become rich. That was what, that was the, that was the Amway message. You know, all you have to, it's, and it's actually just, it's the message of free market capitalism. If you want something badly enough and if you work hard enough to get it, then you inevitably will get it. That's the promise of capitalism. And if you don't get what you want, it's because you either didn't believe hard enough or didn't work hard enough. I don't know what else to say about that, except that it's a fallacy. And ultimately we woke up to the fallacy. So what you did in your essay, you were touring these fancy homes with your parents trying to actualize the wealth. Then later with your husband, when you were in Florida, you would tour sort of bigger and bigger homes and say you were going diamond, which is sort of the upper echelon of being an Amway. And Mm -hmm. with your husband, these realtors would take you to progressively more expensive neighborhoods. What was your experience with the realtors and looking at these houses? And when you were there, was there any part of you that were wanted that? Oh God, yeah. Um, I still want that. I really, for a while, I was I would joke with my my ex husband that um, once we got rich, I just wanted to buy a hot tub, and then we could, you know, that would be the day I, I could die happy if I just owned a hot tub. Um, <laughs> the first realtor that I reached out to knew that I was a writer. I was upfront with her about being a writer. And I said that I was interested in learning about residential development in Tampa Bay over the last 40 or 50 years and how it had shaped the landscape. And that was actually my intention in the beginning. Uh, and then I got a lot of information from her, but I, I noticed that she was talking to me in a particular way, you know, that she was talking to me like a journalist, I guess, you know, and, and kind of what I wanted was to, I realized during this uh, interview that what I wanted was actually to inhabit the life that a person living in this house would live. I, I actually wanted to know what it would be like, you know, and she was giving me a lot of information about flood insurance and, you know, the neighborhood and, um, you know, amenities in the house, which is great. And I wanted that too, but something I, I couldn't slip into the experience, um, of living there. I couldn't really understand. So I, I, you know, I was asking her a lot of questions about who lives there and why, uh, why people move there. So for the next two tours that I went on, I decided to tell the realtors that I was actually interested in buying the house. And the last realtor, this was kind of shocking. And I, I, I felt like I was almost caught in my lie. Like I, I showed up in full, regalia, you know, like as a millionaire. And I, I brought, um, actually a, a friend of mine with me who was posing as my husband. And we, we showed up in his dad's ja- you know, borrowed Jaguar and like, <laughs> so they kind of believed me. Um, and, and the last realtor that we met with had actually looked, looked up my name on the internet because I had to email her, you know, I had to reach out to her via email. So I couldn't lie about who I was completely, but she didn't know. I, I, I hoped that she wouldn't know that writers are mostly poor and not millionaires. So, and it turns out that, you know, that she, she kind of, she believed us. So, um, once I was able to like inhabit that role, um, actually a bit disappointing because the houses were kind of built poorly. Like some of the materials were 
questionable or old or hadn't been updated. The kitchen looked a bit outdated, you know, kind of old fashioned. Carpet was a little sun bleached. And then like just really strangely, you know, the backyards of these houses were actually golf courses, which was, it's just, it's just kind of surreal. It's hard to understand why somebody would want that. <laughs> You're not actually enjoying nature. It looks green, but it's being kept on life support. It's not actually really, you know, it's not completely alive, which is kind of, which became like a, a good metaphor for the whole situation. What did you learn about the Florida of today versus the Florida of your youth? And like looking at these houses now versus the mansions in your youth, did you notice something starkly different? Yeah, I think I was I think I was just a bit naive when I was a kid, you know. I thought that if I had a certain kind of bedroom that other girls would want to be my friends or like I would always be entertained or I would always feel valuable or beautiful or like elegant. I mean, I think a lot of it had to do with looking at kind of, for me as a little girl, like looking at kind of archetypes of uh, women, like princesses or ballerinas, or, you know, it was like, it was naive in that kind of, in that really kind of sweet and innocent way. And, and going back to these houses now, I can see how poorly that actually described me, like the person I turned out to be. I'm like not a ballerina in any way. <laughs> or like a princess in any way. I, I think I discovered that the dream was pretty limited for lots of different reasons. The other part of this is that when we were touring these houses, these neighborhoods were still being developed. So there was this feeling of like vast potential. Um, you know, it, it was almost like, it was like what, like the way we were being taught to think about our lives, like what do we want this to be? You know, it's still being developed, it's still happening. Um, I am making it happen, you know, I am building the house. But if you step into, kind of in the way that we like step into like a female archetype, like if you step into these houses once they've already been built, it's a bit harder to actually change them, you know. Um, if you don't perfectly fit into them already, it can feel really claustrophobic. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star and the essay collection Sunshine State. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So in the t- the essay that's the title for the book, Sunshine State, it's the longest essay, and you're writing about this character, Ralph, although it's more than him, there's a lot of characters in there, who who really loved birds, and he, he started this bird sanctuary. Every testimony about him and, and what you see is this depth of caring for these birds, mm-hmm. but in reality, the way that he cared for them was not very healthy and good for them. And there's a lot of secrets about that. Can you tell me about the genesis of finding this story and a little bit more about it? Sure. I arrived at the bird sanctuary purely with an interest in ornithology. I just really wanted to learn about birds themselves. And I thought that working at a bird sanctuary for six weeks would be a great way to do that. And I did learn a lot about birds. I was feeding baby birds in the hospital. I was watching people, you know, um, set set broken wings. And um, and I, I watched them release. It was actually one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I watched them release this rehabilitated frigate bird on the beach, which I don't know if you've ever seen a frigate bird, but it's a massive bird with like this really bizarre waddle um, beneath its beak. And it could really do some damage. Its beak is extremely sharp and like hooked. So it's just this really um, like almost intimidating, like awe inspiring animal. And I got to watch them release it on the beach. So I had all these experiences that I set out to have, except when I arrived on the first day, the um, volunteer coordinator told me just like, she asked if I was a journalist. And so that's kind of a red flag. I'm like, well, why do you want to know? You know, (laughs) like, 
um, I, I told her that I was writing about the sanctuary and she wanted to know, I think she, she kind of suggested that I might say something bad about the sanctuary, which gave me the idea that there would be something bad to say about the sanctuary, which I hadn't considered before. So, so she said that she was like, are you a journalist? And I said, not really. That's not really why I'm here. Um, except, you know, now I am. Um, and then she said, well, there have been bad things written about us in the paper. And I said uh, it to myself, like, well, I, I hadn't read any of it. I, I like, I was reading, I had read the sanctuary's like official literature, but I, you know, I wasn't digging around for dirt on the sanctuary until I got there. And then once people learned that I was a writer, they literally began to pull me aside and say, I have, the, I have something to tell you. I have to tell you this. So then the stories just started coming out and, and I started seeking them out too. So I don't know, it just became this like kind of mystery story that I didn't expect it to be, but I think it's important, you know, when you're writing something new to be kind of like nimble, like let, let the piece be what it needs to be rather than dictating what it should be. I couldn't get at the truth of, the, of, of this story unless I let it become this kind of like whodunit mystery um, thriller. <laughs> so some of the aspects of that story were that he, he grew up loving animals and he, he started this sanctuary in the land that he grew up on and people started bringing him injured birds. But at the same time, there were rumors that he was stealing money and he was a drug dealer and he wasn't really taking care of the birds and people who were working for him were maybe embezzling money that were his family members. And he had this mysterious warehouse that he was now living in and his kids were really wealthy, but he wasn't. It must have been hard to balance all this. Well, you know, it just it just gave me the idea that there was more to know because there were so many unanswered questions and conflict so much conflicting information, which just made me want to know the truth, who was lying, you know, like somebody, if not more than one person was lying here. And I don't like being lied to, you know, I don't think anybody really likes being lied to. Um, And also, you know, because I already had so much information about the sanctuary, like whenever something didn't make sense, I knew it already because I already had because I I had a lot of background information already um, because I had done my I was doing my research. So I don't I think there was some part of me that kind of understood Ralph, too. Like, you know, I, I wanted to understand him, but there was some part of me that already on a gut level, like related to him, you know, he was like a really sensitive guy. Um. And he really did care about the birds. And also, you know, like I've in my past, like struggled with mental illness. And so I understand like how how difficult it is. And I think I, I kind of like suspected that something was going on with him. So I, I wanted to get closer to him and find out what was going on. I, you know, everybody likes a good conspiracy also. Right. And it was such an unusual setting um, in which to find a conspiracy, like a bird sanctuary of all places. Like what could what could possibly be a foot here, you know, aside from like caring for seabirds. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star and the essay collection Sunshine State. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So now that your book is out in the world, do you look at any of these things differently? Like, what did you learn maybe from writing the essays that you didn't know before, even as a writer? I hadn't written long form journalism of this kind before. So that was something I had to teach myself how to do. When I sit down to write something, I really just want to tell my reader a good story. So, you know, I, I was challenged to do that in a lot of different ways while I was writing this book. And it was something I was interested in was like experimenting with form, especially in the last essay. That was really just a kind of a, a writing exercise for me. I, I wrote that I wrote the last essay only because I wanted to know whether or not I could do it. I mean, 
I wanted to kind of push the limits of autobiography, like what would be a thread that I could lift from this loom uh, all the way back, you know, um, and, and maybe find like, you know, some surprising um, details there. So, yeah, so that was one actually like something that I something else that I learned while I was writing this book was um, the last essay, which is just to summarize, it's the story of my life told backwards through every animal I've ever formed a relationship with of any kind, or as many as I could recall. So in order to write that essay, I visited a hypnotist and I had her help me recall um, as many animals as possible. And I came away with something like 400 or 350 to 400. And then I just like loaded them all into an Excel spreadsheet in no particular order. And I did my best to put them in chronological order. And then I, you know, reversed it. And then I had to figure out like, okay, well, this is just a list. This is just raw data, you know, a lot like, you know, like the data that I was like finding on government websites to write like other essays, but like, okay, so how do I translate this into something that's actually, that actually could be fun or interesting to read. So that was a challenge too, you know, um, I actually, I, I mean, I, I, it was actually kind of shocking how, like, how quickly I recalled this information with the assistance of this hypnotist. Like, animals would just come rushing back to me in the car. Like, I have to take out my phone and dictate into it, you know, like a cluster of 10 animals. Um, you know, on, on another level, as a writer, like, every time I write something, I learn something about myself. You know, I'm, like, putting my feelings and thoughts in order. In my head, um, oftentimes, I feel like, I don't know, um, just kind of this, um, I don't know, like diaphanous sense of a feeling. I don't actually know how I feel unless I sit down and like write it, you know, and then, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I do feel sad or angry or just, you know, despair or something, um, or like elation. Um, but that's not something I can easily put my finger on in my everyday life. If somebody just asked me up front, like, how are you feeling? I'm like, I, I have no idea. Like, how do, do you know? Um, yeah, I don't usually know how I feel about something until I think about it in retrospect. So, yeah, so every time I write something, I, I learn something about myself. Very curious about the hypnotist. So, yeah, it was really fascinating. I called a couple of different hypnotists before I came down to Florida, and I wanted to find the best one. And um, I called, I think, two or three before I called her. And then she and I had like a 30 or 35 minute conversation on the phone, our very first time talking. I thought she was so interesting. She was like, well, here's how memory works. Like, you're not actually going to remember every single animal you've ever met, but you'll remember ones that you have an emotional story for. That's why we store memories is, you know, there's like something emotional in this moment, something important to us in this moment. So when I got to her office, we spent the first like 15 minutes just talking about like, like trying to discover like what my like sensory modalities are, like whether I'm a visual person or whether I'm more auditory or um, sensory or something, you know, so that she could spin the right narrative to help me access memory. So what we ended up doing was going to the bottom of a lake and I was like among the, you know, algae or the seaweed or whatever and like watching bubbles rise to the surface and within each bubble was a different animal. Um, and she, um, I can't remember kind of what else. I think, she, I think she like mentioned some specific animals or she asked me to respond yes or no by lifting a finger, um, things like that. And I, she, she told me it was okay to fall asleep. I think I, I, think I fell asleep a little bit. Um, and then she recorded the session so that I could listen to it later, and, which I haven't done, but I'm, I have to go find that CD now because I think it would be really interesting. She told me that in the days following our session, I would continue to remember animals, and I, which was true. They would just suddenly come like rushing back to me, like this whole like complete memory, you know, that I hadn't accessed in probably, you know, 20 years 
or something. And I was right back in the moment. It was really intense. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star and the essay collection Sunshine State. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? One of the writers that I wrote about in this book is H. Emily Cady. She was a New Thought author. And... um, She's my mom's favorite New Thought author, and and I wrote about her in this book. So I actually just went to my parents' library, and I I pulled out – this is my mom's favorite book by H. Emily Cady. It's called How I Used Truth. The first chapter is called Finding the Christ in Ourselves. Throughout all his teaching, Jesus tried to show those who listened to him how he was related to the Father and to teach them that they were related to the same Father in exactly the same way. Over and over again, he tried in different ways to explain to them that God lived within them, that he was not the God of the dead, but of the living. And never once did he assume to do anything as of himself, always saying, I can of myself do nothing. The Father abiding in me doeth his works. But it was very hard then for people to understand, just as it is very hard for us to understand today. There were, in the person of Jesus, two distinct regions. There was the fleshly mortal mortal part that was Jesus, the Son of Man, Then there was the central living real part that was the spirit, the son of God, that was the Christ, the anointed. So each one of us has two regions of being, one, the fleshly mortal part, which is always feeling its weakness and insufficiency in all things, always saying, I can't. Then at the very center of our being, there is a something that in our highest moments knows itself more than conqueror over over all things. It always says, I can and I will. It is the Christ child, the son of God, the anointed in us. Call no man your father on the earth, says Jesus, for one is your father, even he who is in heaven. And do you want to say anything more about it? You and I talked earlier about, you know, the um, the material world and the spiritual world. And, you know, in the New Thought movement, in the New Thought philosophy, um, the spiritual world is the only true reality. And the, and the material world is an illusion of our mortal mind, um, which is like the, the flawed part of ourself. So that's... Um, that's what she's talking about here, you know, like the, in the sense that um, that Jesus was also um, both man and spirit. You know, um, the hum- humanity is also each of us, both material and spirit. And so what she's saying is if we access the part of ourselves that is that is pure spirit, then we can like overcome the limitations of the material world. You know, instead of saying I can't, we say I can and I will. I wrote about that extensively in the New Thought essay, but um, but it also kind of resonates throughout the book. I think in other essays like Going Diamond, this idea that just because we believe we can, then we will. I find this idea kind of on a on a gut level for me really moving. Like when I when I go back to the the Unity Clearwater Church, I actually get really emotional in the um, in the services. Just I think like hearing some of the prayers, like they just they shoot directly to like the you know like the most foundational part of my brain, like my child brain. It's like it receives them completely. So. That's, yeah, how I feel about the passage that I just read. It just, it sounds a lot like my childhood. I get, I feel kind of emotional reading it. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to edit or changed a lot from the first draft? I'll read the last essay, actually, of the book of Sunshine State, which I've never read from before. Okay, it's called Before in Inventory. June, my birthday. Botanic garden, bees in the roses, white dog at the in-laws, roaches in my apartment, Brooklyn, goldfish at my parents' house, Largo, cats pissing in the laundry, lizards on the porch looking weathered, jays in the roses, sunken gardens, kookaburra, cockatoo, flamingo, stray dogs on the freeway off-ramp, May, entering Florida, road trip. 
Reverse West, Grackles on the power lines, Austin, Emo on the roadside, Marfa, Vultures, white-tipped wings in the headlights, bats in the highway, lambs in truck beds, horses grazing in New Mexico, grazing milk cows in Tucson, and on and on the bluebells, up the coast. Molting season elephant seals, elk in the redwoods, sapphire jay at the general store, snails in the rocks in Seattle, alien mouths of barnacles, starfish, sea anemones, rumors of black whales on black rock beaches, sexually frustrated cat in Tacoma licking itself on the bookstore floor, reverse west. Bison in Wind Cave, Forest Fire, Ibex at Rushmore, Grey Great Dane named Zeus, Twin Cities, Hawks over Iowa soy fields, Lab at the Hunt's House, Beetles mating on the neck high corn, Farm with Alpacas, Long Haired and Matted, White Bunny kept to the rug, Chicago. So I'll stop there because it kind of just goes on in the same way. But yeah, this was really difficult to edit because I had to read it aloud over and over and over and over again to make sure that the rhythm, you know, didn't catch anywhere or that, you know, like within a line certain sounds were resonating or that I was using or like repeating or like that I was using exactly the right image to describe the feeling in that moment. Like each of these animals is a different, you know, is, is an entirely independent scene, you know, it like represents a whole moment. So I, I really wanted to bring as much sensory information to the surface as possible in order for each of these moments to be as immersive as possible, but for, but for the piece to still flow quickly. I mean, it has like a pretty rapid uh, rhythm. So yeah, it was just really, my, my editor and I sent it back and forth a bunch of times. Um, also, it was hard to sig signal that the piece was moving backwards without being really overt about it or without slowing it down a lot. And I didn't want it to slow down. I wanted it to kind of rush past. It was really frustrating and really difficult. I couldn't like get it right for a while. And, and, I, and I just want, it was like the last essay that I wrote too. So I just wanted it to be done. I was like, I'm so done writing this book. Like, can we just please figure it out already? But I'm glad we did. It's, it's the, probably the strangest thing I've ever written. <laughs> Where do you write? I write most of the time on my couch at my coffee table. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I make collages also. Um, it's hard sometimes to put words to certain things and making uh, visual art, um, you know, allows me to kind of notice associations within my mind that I might not be able to put my finger on in writing, you know, but like, or maybe I don't know exactly how I feel about something or what I think about something. And if I just follow my gut while I'm making a collage, most of the time, like the assembly kind of ends up showing me how I feel or what I think, um, just like the relationship of found images and however, however allowed myself to arrange them. Um, and it feels pretty like freeing in the sense that nothing is really at stake when I'm making a collage. It's not like I'm writing something that could be damaging to my, to me or, you know, my image or damaging to somebody else in my life, or even, you know, I'm relying on this piece of writing to pay my rent this month or something, you know, and like when I'm making a collage, I don't have to think about any of that. So it's just like a, a good play, place to play around. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Usually my friend, Amy Gall. She's a pretty brilliant writer, or and my friend Rachel Hearn, um, who's also a pretty brilliant writer. Um, they're usually my first readers. And how have you dealt with rejection? I hmm, <laughs> just do. I just let it kind of roll off my back now. I'm so used to it. I don't really care anymore. You know, I, I usually have like four or five simultaneous projects I'm working on. So if one of them falls through or is rejected, I, you know, I kind of move on. Um, at first, though, it was really difficult. Yeah, it was really painful because like your writing is so personal. You know, it's, it's hard to understand sometimes that when somebody says no to you, it's not because they don't like you it's, or they don't want you or don't think that what you are saying is, you know, important or interesting. Like oftentimes when, a, when an editor 
says no, it's because they don't have room for this kind of story right now, or they are, or they just published one like it, or they don't, they don't think it can be, you know, that the story you want to write um, might be too long for what they're able to publish, you know, like the amount of words, words that they can publish at one time or something. So yeah, I just kind of move on now. Yeah. And I don't read Amazon reviews or Goodreads reviews because there's no reason for me to do that. <laughs> and what is your favorite word? Mm, sunshine. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Sarah Gerard, author of the novel Binary Star and the essay collection Sunshine State. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.